Lord, as we have just sung, we pray that you would be our vision. We confess so often that our thoughts are small and that we are so focused on ourselves that we neglect to think about you. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would save us from that. It is uh, bondage to be so absorbed in self and in the small things of this world that we lose sight of our creator. Uh, Lord, I pray for those here today who do not know Christ. I pray that the gospel would be clear for them and that uh, you would work in their hearts that they would turn from their sins and trust in you. I pray for all of us, Lord, as we all uh, in this life are struggling with sin. I pray that, as we, that we would get a, a renewed vision of our awesome God and that that would affect how we live. Uh, the confidence that we li- uh, lead our lives with and the desire to live in a way that pleases you. Uh, Lord, we need uh, your word. It is our food. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would eliminate distractions as we sit down to this meal uh, of your word. May you be glorified in all. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Without a firm foundation, a structure will not long stand. With a firm foundation, a structure can stand for centuries. A foundation repair company in Texas wrote the following on its website about three famous examples of faulty foundations. One example of a famous foundation failure in Texas is South Padre Island's Ocean Tower. Ocean Tower was originally designed to be a 31-story building for high-end condominiums. However, construction of the tower couldn't be completed because of foundation problems discovered in early 2008 the expansive soil beneath the tower began to compact, causing the building to sink and lean. Construction ceased, and the building had to be demolished in 2009. The Transcona Grain Elevator was a grain storage facility used by the Canadian Pacific Railway. The Transcona Grain Elevator didn't even last a day before foundation problems surfaced. On October 18, 1913, the building began to settle as grain was moved indoors. In the first hour after unloading, the building sank one foot into the ground. By the next day, the building was tilted an entire 27 degrees to the west. Researchers found that the foundation was extremely unstable because it was constructed on stratified clay, which contained layers of silt salt throughout the layers of clay. In at least one case, foundation failure didn't completely ruin a building. When construction began on the Tower of Pisa 840 years ago, workers immediately ran into soil-related foundation issues. Work stopped for nearly a century due to political unrest in Italy, but construction continued in 1272 despite the tower's famous stature. Attempts to compensate for poor soil quality failed numerous times. Today, the tower continues its downward descent, but at a much slower pace due to foundation repair. A faulty foundation can cause complete collapse or just crookedness and distortion. What is a foundation? Well, literally, a foundation is that solid soil or slab upon which a building or monument is built and to which it is anchored. It could be made of cement or brick, or it could be layers of bedrock. But it provides strength and stability so that the structure above does not shift, fall apart, or collapse. Figuratively, a foundation could be a person who starts a movement with his ideas or personal charisma. Think, for
for example, of our founding fathers in this nation or the founder of a dictatorship. A foundation could also be the basic truths or ideas that keep a movement going long after a founder has passed off the scene. For example, the ideas in the founding documents of our nation, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Sorry, that's about as close to an Independence Day sermon as we're going to get today. Or, on the negative side, you could think of how uh, Marx's Communist Manifesto could be the founding ideas for a socialist state. Foundations are that which, if removed, cause the rest of the structure to fall. They are something to build upon. They are basic, important, essential. Foundations are supposed to be strong and sturdy, and they always come first. Today, we begin the study of one such foundation, the book of Genesis. In many ways, Genesis is the foundation of the Bible. As the first book in the Bible, it begins all the themes that will be carried throughout the other 65 books. You can also think of Genesis as the foundation of the foundation. Genesis is, in many ways, the introduction to the Pentateuch, which is just a fancy name for the first five books of the Bible. And the Pentateuch was foundational to Old Testament Israel and is foundational to the rest of the Bible. Genesis is the foundation of the foundation. And, as we will see over the course of this series, Genesis is the foundation of our faith. Genesis lays the foundation for who the Christian God is and what he is like. And it lays out the great problem for which Jesus Christ is the ultimate solution. Genesis is foundational for the Christian faith. During this series, we are going to put on our hard hats flip on our flashlights and study the foundation of, foundation of the Bible and the foundation of our faith piece by piece, layer by layer. But before we do that, let's go into the construction office, open the cabinet, pull out some blueprints, roll them out on the table and get an overview of the foundation. Let's see who made this foundation and what it's made of. Let's see its parts and overall structure. And let's see how this foundation fits with the rest of the building. In this case, the Pentateuch, the Bible, and our Christian faith. So let's begin with an overview of Genesis. In doing so, we will answer a series of questions. Why is it called Genesis? I'm glad you asked. The title in our English Bible comes from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The word Genesis is Greek for origins or generations. In the Hebrew Bible, the, name, uh, the book is named for the first word, which means beginning. Both titles are appropriate since Genesis is a book of origins, contains many lists of generations, and is all about beginnings. Who built this foundation? Who's the builder? In other words, who wrote this book? Well, because we believe in the inspiration of the Bible, that the original words were God-breathed, Ultimately, the author is God, the Holy Spirit. However, as we know from Peter's second letter, God used human beings to write the Bible who were carried along by the Holy Spirit. For Genesis, its human author is Moses. We know that many portions of the Pentateuch were first written down by Moses, and there is a consistent message and style going through all five books of the Pentateuch. The rest of Scripture quotes from the Pentateuch and ascribes it to Moses. 
Now, some scholars in the past few centuries have overanalyzed the text and tried to say that Moses didn't write it. But in the final analysis, there's no good reason to doubt that Moses is the primary human author of Genesis. When did he build it? Moses uh, likely wrote Genesis and the rest of the Pentateuch during the journey from Egypt to the Promised Land in the second millennium before Christ, or B.C. It could have been during the 1300s or the 1500s B.C., depending on when you date the Exodus. Well, what tools did he use to build it? Well, the best explanation for some of the stylistic variations and the mashing together of genealogies, narratives, heroic epic, poetry, elevated prose, and other genres of literature in the same book is not that Moses wasn't the author, but that Moses used many sources when compiling the information in Genesis and the rest of the Pentateuch. Much the way Luke relies on records and first-person interviews to write his orderly account of Christ's life in the Gospel of Luke, Moses likely used oral histories, family trees, documents, and lists when he wrote Genesis through divine inspiration. It's likely that someone else added the account of Moses' death in Deuteronomy and that scribes updated place names so that later generations could better understand the geography. Moses' sources were not inspired, but the final version that Moses wrote was. So the fact that we don't have these, res- uh, these sources should not concern us. And Moses' education in the Egyptian court likely exposed him to the best literature of the day, which no doubt served him well when God used him to record the history of humanity, the nation of Israel, and of God's dealings with both. Well, who was this foundation built for? Or who were the original homeowners, if you want to think of a house foundation? And what was the original purpose of this foundation? Another way to ask it is, who were the first readers, the first audience? Moses wrote the book of, uh, the book of Genesis for the children of Israel, wandering in the wilderness, waiting to take possession of the promised land. Genesis is the origin story of the new nation that God was forming in the wilderness. It tells how God made the universe and mankind and then selected one family out of all the others on the earth to be the vehicle for his blessing to the entire human race. Genesis traces their family history, a history of great promises from God, great faith, but also great sin and sorrow. Genesis helped the children of Israel in the wilderness understand where they came from and how they came to be in the land of Egypt, where they were going, and the plan that God had for them to bless the nations. Genesis provides an important introduction to the laws laid down in the rest of the Pentateuch. In fact, Genesis is often lumped in with all the other books of the law. It sets the context for the law given at Sinai, and it portrays the character of the God who gave that law. Now, the accounts in Genesis bear some resemblance to other creation and flood accounts in the ancient Near Eastern literature. And some scholars use this fact to dismiss Genesis as just another ancient myth. However, the most shocking things about comparing Genesis to other ancient accounts is not the similarities, but the differences. Lord willing, we will look more at this in our next sermon, but the one true God depicted in Genesis is nothing like the pagan gods of ancient myth. He is all-powerful and perfect in his holy character. When he shows wrath, it is just wrath. And we see a loving and merciful God as well. Genesis is also uh, a criticism of ancient myths. 
setting the record straight on what God is truly like and denouncing pagan concepts of God. Later generations of Israelites would look back to Genesis to understand their law, their origins, and their God. During the conquest of Canaan, the anarchy of the time of the judges, the blessing of the United Kingdom, the chaos of the divided kingdom, the humiliation of the exile, and the triumph of the return, Old Testament Jews could remind themselves of who they were as humans, created in God's image, as descendants of Abraham, and as the inheritors of the promises God made to Abraham and his descendants. Well, what is the foundation? Uh, what is the foundation structure? How was it built? What are its parts? Really, there are three ways that we could look at the structure of Genesis. First, it has two parts, the primeval and the patriarchal. Chapters 1 through 11, well, 1 through 11 are primeval history. That's just a fancy word that means the earliest history of the planet and of the human race. These chapters are very broad in scope. Uh, and other than a few times when the camera zooms in on an important character, they're very impersonal. Chapters 12 through 50 focus on one man, Abraham, his son Isaac, his grandson Jacob, and his 12 great-grandsons. These men are called the patriarchs, the founding fathers of the nation of Israel. The second section is longer than the first, but, the, but more narrow in scope, and it's much more personal and intimate. Another way, a second way to look at the structure of Genesis is that it contains an introduction followed by 10 sections. These 10 sections each begin with a heading. The Hebrew word is toledot. The ESV translates toledot as generations, but the NIV calls them accounts, and the Christian Standard Bible calls them records. So the phrases that you'll see most likely in your English Bibles are, these are the generations of, or these are the accounts of, or these are the records of. After the introduction, which is the first of two creation accounts, we have these ten toledots of the heavens and the earth, of Adam, of Noah, of the sons of Noah, of Shem, of Terah, of Ishmael, of Isaac, of Esau, and of Jacob. Each toledot is a different length. Some are very long and some are extremely short. And the person named in the heading is not always the main character of the account that follows. I think a good translation would be, this is the history that begins with so-and-so. A third way to look at the structure of Genesis is to, face, is to trace the family tree that goes through the entire book. The spine of the book is the line of Adam to Noah, Noah to Abraham, and then Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and to his 12 sons and their descendants. This is the line of promise. God promised that someone from this line would solve the ultimate problems of mankind and the universe. God took an obscure, landless man and used him and his family to fulfill, fulfill God's great promises to mankind. Now, a word about genealogies. I know those, those are everybody's favorite part when they're doing their read through the Bible in a year program, right? As we will study through Genesis, we will see that there are two kinds of gene genealogies, linear and segmented. So the linear genealogies go from father to son, tracing a line, hence the name, uh, the line of promise from Adam to Jacob and his 12 sons. The segmented genealogies list some of the branches that branch off from this line of promise. These segmented genealogies show God's authority over all nations 
and ethnicities, and also provide a helpful background for many of Israel's future neighbors and enemies. Well, what is the pattern or theme of this foundation? The story arc of Genesis is creation, then fall, and then a promise or, uh, and foreshadowings of redemption with hints of a recreation. The book begins the great story arc of the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, and recreation. Well, what is the purpose of Genesis today? Genesis was not just written for the Jewish people. It tells of, a, of the God of the universe, not just the God of Israel. And it tells of his plans for all humanity. Genesis helps the people of God in any age know who God is and what he has done in human history and what he is like. It shows us the character of God, his power, his wisdom, his just anger, his love, his mercy, his long-suffering, and his grace to the undeserving. We also see God's glory. In John Calvin's commentary, he calls the book of Genesis an incomparable treasure, and he marvels at the splendid mirror of God's glory, which is constantly presented to us in the fabric of the world. Now, there are a lot of historical, scientific, and archaeological questions we could get hung up with, and we will touch on many of these issues. But the thing we need to keep in mind is that Genesis reveals to us the character of God. Much like how the book of Revelation is meant to reveal Jesus Christ to us, and not necessarily all the details of the last days, so Genesis is meant primarily for us to know God better. One of the important things we learn about God in Genesis is his kindness to undeserving sinners. Undeserved kindness is a great definition for grace. This is important for us to remember. Some denominations teach that grace can be earned or merited, but it is an oxymoron to think that unmerited favor can be merited. Grace cannot be earned. It can only be given, and it can only be given by God. And contrary to what many think, grace is not just a New Testament concept. It is all over the Old Testament. Grace is all over Genesis. As Calvin again said, we see in the history of Moses, such an instance of the grace of God ought to raise us to firm confidence. Another commentator said, God's promise to establish his kingdom through his grace that overcomes sin is the governing theme of Genesis. This book is all about God, and it is all about grace. So I'm titling this sermon series, Foundations of Grace. And there's no better way to see that this book is all about God than to study its first verse. So please turn with me to the first book of the Bible, to the first page of text, the first chapter and the very first verse. Please follow along as I read aloud Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Amen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. These are seven words in the original Hebrew. Seven words that scholars say are the foundation of the rest of the Bible. Well, probably the best way to break down this verse is to think of this as three words and a phrase. Three words and a phrase. First, we will examine the first three Hebrew words, and then we'll look at the final phrase. Let's look at it. So here are the first three words in the Hebrew Bible. 
Now, don't worry, this won't be a, a lesson in Hebrew. You don't have to have had Hebrew class to enjoy this sermon series. But I thought it would be helpful to see these three words in their original form. In Hebrew, we read right to, to left. So here are the three words with their pronunciations in English translation. Berejit bara Elohim. In the beginning, created God. The ESV, like other reliable English translations, renders this, in the beginning, God created. Well, let's begin with the beginning, the first word, Berejit. This word is the title of the book in the Hebrew Bible, in keeping with the tradition of naming each book of the Pentateuch after the first word. This word means the beginning of a specific time period or the beginning of a sequence of events. We are reading here about the ultimate beginning, the beginning of everything. As we are going to see, the subject God existed before the beginning. He has pre-existed. He has always been. The word berejit, or beginning, is frequently used uh, or paired with aharit, which means ending. So even here in the account of the beginning of all created things, the author hints at, at the ending. To borrow a phrase from Stephen Covey, God began with the end in mind. Well, that's the setting. Now let's look at the verb, the action word. Bara. The word means to produce something new, fresh, and perfect. This is a singular verb, so it rules out polytheism, the idea that from pagan mythology that there are many gods and that through their conflicts with each other, they made all that now exists. Of all the words used in the Bible for making, fashioning, or forming, this one is only ever used when God is doing the action. This word refers to God's unique act of creation. This kind of creation is the exclusive activity of God. While this word doesn't necessarily mean creation out of nothing, the Latin phrase is ex nihilo, we know from other scripture that God did create the universe out of nothing. This verb, bara, shows that the subject of this sentence took deliberate action in forming the creation. Now we arrive at the subject, Elohim. This is the general name for God. It means supreme one, and it indicates power and deity. In other contexts, it can be used, used for false gods or for human rulers. So this is not God's covenant name, which we will see in the next chapter of Genesis. However, it is the same God. God is explaining to his special people that he is the God of the universe, not just the God of Israel. The word here is plural, which, like, which is likely meant to show respect for God's majesty. It was common in ancient literature to use the plural uh, for a ruler or for deity. It is similar to the way the Queen of England today still uses the royal we or the majestic plural when speaking of herself. So, for instance, she might say, that does not please us, or we are not amused. Now, some have seen here, some great theologians and Bible teachers have seen here an early indication of the Trinity, but that's probably not the case. We know from the rest of the Bible that the one true God has always eternally existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that all three persons of the Godhead were each involved in creation. This verse is not necessarily a proof text for the Trinity, but it is certainly compatible with the doctrine of the Trinity. This word emphasizes God's power, his sovereignty, and his universal authority. Three words and a phrase. 
So those were our three words. Now we consider our phrase, which is the direct object of this sentence, for you grammar geeks out there. We see that in the beginning God created, but what did he create? The Hebrew phrase literally says, the heavens and the earth. The heavens can refer to the atmosphere and also to what we now call outer space. And the earth, as in English, can mean our planet or the land or the soil. But it would be a mistake to try to parse these words individually. Scholars agree that this phrase is a special literary device called a merism. A merism is a phrase that uses extremes to indicate all of something or every kind of something. So some examples from modern day. Day and night means constantly or 24 hours a day. Big and small means everyone regardless of size. Man and beast means all living things, and the living and the dead means everyone who has ever lived. So the phrase heavens and the earth means the entire universe or everything. Put it all together, and a good translation would be, in the beginning, God created everything. And the New Testament reinforces this truth. In the first chapter of his gospel, John, speaking of Jesus, says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Everything in this universe was created by God, has its ultimate source in God, and is subject to and dependent on God. And just like how in the beginning looks ahead to an ending, so does the creation of the heavens and the earth look forward to a creation of a new heavens and a new earth. In the beginning, God created everything. The God of Israel is the God of the universe. The God of the Bible is the God of who created all that exists. And God created everything out of nothing. As Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Before time existed... God existed. And by a deliberate act, Almighty God created everything that exists. I have three applications for us today. Application number one. God is the center of the universe, not you. God is the center of the universe, not you, not me, not us. The Bible begins with God and his awesome power. God's rightful place is the central focus of the universe and the first place in the hearts of his creatures. But because of our self-centeredness, God is often far from our thoughts. We like to put ourselves at the center of our little universes. When you lay down to sleep, when you are going about your day, at work, running errands, relaxing, who are you thinking about? Are you always yourself? What is driving you? Whose glory and happiness are you most concerned about? It's so easy to slip into a pattern of life where God is just an afterthought. Our faith becomes a side dish to the main course of our life. Just something we do on Sundays and nothing more. A a hobby or a source of self-help. But God is the subject of this sentence. He is the protagonist of the narrative. As we like to teach the kids in Adventure Club through song, God is the hero of the story. 
And God is the most important focus for our thoughts and desires. As we continue this study of Genesis, Lord willing, we will see time and again that God is the main character of this book. Let us pray that as we study this book, God gives us a God-centered perspective. This is a God-centered book. We live in a God-centered universe, and we should have God-centered lives. To do anything less would be a form of idolatry, to put someone or something in the place where only God belongs. Now, God knows and cares about our, our struggles and our sorrows, and we certainly have our responsibilities, but everything in our lives should be viewed through the lens of God's glory. Application number two, God should be obeyed. This book and this verse show God's power and authority. As the creator, he gets to make the rules. As one commentator put it, God is absolutely sovereign over all matter. Such sovereignty demands allegiance, for to acknowledge the creator naturally leads to submission to him. We do not have the right to pick and choose in our obedience to God. The spirit of the age is either outright rebellion against God's commands, selective obedience, or just a, super, a supposedly neutral independence. But anything less than perfect obedience is disobedience. We owe God absolute perfect obedience, but none of us have obeyed God completely, have we? Application number three, God has existed before the beginning and he will exist after the ending. Are you ready for that ending? None of us has kept God at the center of the universe like we should. And none of us has obeyed God fully or perfectly except Christ. This is a huge problem for the rest of us because God is just and he cannot tolerate evil. In a few chapters, we will see the reason for this. Spoiler alert, but we will soon see how the disobedience of mankind ruined the perfect creation that God made and broke the relationship between God and man. Because of this brokenness, we don't know our creator the way we should. Well, how can this broken relationship with our creator be restored? We know from John's gospel that Jesus Christ, God the Son, existed before the beginning and was involved in creation. We know from Kyle's series through John's Apocalypse, the book of Revelation, that Jesus will be at the ending, riding a white horse of victory. You need Christ in order to know God. Without Christ, the best you can be is a moral person who does as many good things as possible. But to truly know God, you need to know God. Christ. And you cannot get to God through being nice enough or through good works. You must admit your sin, turn from your sin, trust in Christ alone, and not your own goodness or good works. You can't make up for your sin by turning over a new leaf or trying extra hard to be better. You must acknowledge your sin, turn from it, and rely fully on Christ's work on the cross. Only then will you have forgiveness of sins. And only then can you restore your relationship with your creator. If you have questions about that and you want to know more about how you can have your sins forgiven, please talk to one of us after the service. We would love to show you from the Bible what Christ has done for us and what he can do for you. Ultimately, we cannot live God-centered lives without Christ. 
Only when we place our faith in Christ can we begin to live God-centered lives. Well, let's return to our foundation theme. This verse is the foundation of the book of Genesis. Genesis is the foundation of the Pentateuch, the law, the Old Testament, the Bible, the Christian faith. What could be a better foundation for our lives and for our faith than God himself and truth about God? Genesis and the rest of the Bible is a God-centered book. God is at the beginning. The beginning is all about God. God is the main character of Genesis. God is the main character of the Bible. God is the main character of the universe. Is he the main character of your life? Let's stand and, and close in prayer. Lord, we exalt in your power and your glory. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would have a renewed vision of your uh, goodness and, and of your grace. Lord, we thank you for Christ. Lord, it is only through him and his work on the cross uh, that we can have forgiveness of sins and a relationship with our creator. I pray that we would uh, take advantage of this gospel opportunity, place our faith in you, and that we would uh, daily Seek to live God-centered lives that bring glory to you for as many days as you give us on this earth. Lord, be glorified in all we do. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.